Vaxi's musical podcast. In the early to mid 1980s, you could not hold a beer guzzling keg party on a college campus in America unless you had the following items beer, cups, furniture made from empty bud cases and two by fours, and a copy of the Violent Femmes debut album. Any party that did not have these things was trash and not worth going to. I went to literally hundreds of them. But if you couldn't produce Blister in the Sun or Gone Daddy Gone within the first 45 minutes, then it would have been time to grab your coat and get the hell out of there. Now, I happen to have gone to college in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the birthplace of the Violent Femmes. They were an inescapable part of my precocious college youth. The Violent Femmes, along with R.E.M., The Replacements, Husker Du, and a few other bands at the time were what you might call the shit. Because in 1984, they were among the most important American bands of our young lives. And since there were only three members of the Violent Femmes, it was not so unheard of to see them play about town, whether they were playing live or not. The band was formed in suburban Milwaukee between bass player Brian Ritchie and drummer Victor DiLorenzo. They were soon joined by the much younger Gordon Gano, who would become the band's primary songwriter. The band would accidentally be discovered by, of all people, the Pretenders, and from there, they would become one of the most important and beloved folk punk bands of all time with their debut album going platinum and with their music being played in sports arenas around the country and around the world. That original iteration of the band would stay in place until 1993 when drummer Victor DiLorenzo would leave the Violent Femmes. And while Brian and Gordon would continue on, Victor's career blossomed as well. He became deeply involved in Milwaukee theater, art, and other musical ventures that included releasing several solo albums of his own and touring with fellow drummer Mo Tucker from the Velvet Underground. To say that Victor is somewhat of a modern Renaissance man is hardly inaccurate, and he continues to be involved in some pretty fascinating stuff to this day, including the release of A Free Society, the album with his new band, The Night Crickets, a band that includes himself, multi-instrumentalist Darwin Miners, and David J. from Bauhaus and Love and Rockets. It's simply a terrific band with a terrific record. In the next hour, you're going to hear us talk about all that stuff and a hell of a lot more. This is my interview with the great Victor DiLorenzo from the Violent Femmes on Baxi's Musical Podcast. How you doing? I'm good, Michael. How about you? I am. I am great. I I am so excited to talk to you because uh, oh, wonderful. Well, so the, and there's a reason for it. Okay. I'm, I'm not just a fan. I lived in Milwaukee for 11 wonderful years. Uh, oh, all right. I was a Marquette student, you know, lived all over there, lived on the east side, lived at River West. I, I was in Milwaukee radio for a number of years. And, uh, oh, yeah, which, uh, which station were you at? I, I worked at the old uh, QFM. Oh, sure. Did mornings there for a period of time and then eventually went over to WKLH. Oh, all right, sure. So this would have been like 1986 to 90. When did I get fired? <laughs> uh, it's hard to remember. I think it was those like are nine... always those are always great times to remember. <laughs> well, yeah, and good times to forget in a lot of ways too. But uh, yeah. I've always loved the city and 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 you know follow the music scene of of that town for for many years. And 
And one of the things that had that had always been a part of our regular schedule was the washed up has beens. Uh, oh no! Yes, the washed up has beens of rock, the noisemakers from hell. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, you, you know, and I know that probably means you know nothing to nobody who who never stepped foot in Milwaukee. But every week, it was the best show in town. Uh, you know, you and and Pat McCurdy and. Uh, uh, Sigmund Snowpeck and uh, Kenny Baldwin. Oh yeah, right. I was right. Brian Ritchie. Yep. I mean, it was uh, always Jimmy and Nelly. Everybody. Yeah, and uh, was it Pete Balistrieri was in it too? Peter Balistrieri <laughs> was drinking really good and playing some tenor sax. <laughs> that was uh, that was just organized madness. That was absolutely crazy, and I'm I'm not even sure how long that went on for, but I think everybody was kind of relieved when it finally ended because. You didn't have to put up with these massive uh, hangovers anymore. <laughs> well, it was—I mean, it was always such a great show because it was—it was part comedy and part audience participation, and you know, certainly this cultish, rabid following that would show up every Sunday night. At—I think it was Harpo's was when uh, when I would go, and right over on Brady Street, and on yeah. Brady Street, we, and I—I I probably went twenty times, maybe maybe more. And it was always, oh, oh, yeah, it was always so much fun. And, you know, it was a Sunday night. We'd get loaded, and it was always, <laughs> it was always, always yeah, a great time. Yeah, those were fun times. That, that, was a, that was a fun group of people to be around. And very talented people, too, which was, oh, yeah. you know, Snowpeck is probably like one of those uh, underappreciated forgotten geniuses, and, and Pat McCurdy is a guy that still still plays out there. And, you know, just a yeah, wonderful I put, talent. I put, Sigmund, I put Sigmund into that same league of a, a Wisconsin eccentric a la almost like a Les Paul yeah. in a way that they're, they're really groundbreaking individuals in many different ways. And Sigmund certainly has uh, quite a, a career behind him and, and continues to this day. And it's funny because I have a very uh, intimate relationship with Sigmund in that he and I share the same birthday. Oh, really? So, right. So every year, October 25th, we, we put a call into one another and sometimes we get together and have a little cocktail or what have you. Oh, that's good. That's good to know. Uh, and, and you certainly work together on, the, on, you know, the violent femme stuff, but I'm, I'm glad that you guys have still, you know, stayed connected. But oh yeah. He's a great guy to know. One of the amazing things about the violent femmes and about, you know, Milwaukee is like you, you, everybody in Milwaukee kind of just saw the violent femmes as a, you know, an East side band, you know, UWM, uh, it, you know, it was a band that was played at every Marquette keg party. In fact, if you didn't play the Violent Femmes at your keg party, your party sucked. <laughs> simple as that. But I, yeah, I always, I always thought that, that there was this kind of sense that you know this was a local band, and it was very hard for people in in town to grasp this concept that the Violent Femmes were not just a Milwaukee band it went for a while it's like an international phenomenon it, it it kind of exploded for a while especially after the the first and, and and second album this was a band that was very much in demand because of its of its uniqueness and approachability I agree uh, we we always prided ourselves on our uniqueness in fact we tried to nurture that of course we had all kinds of uh, varied musical influences between Gordon Bryan and myself but I'd have to say that when we played together as Violent Femmes, it created a new, a new kind of music for us, which, which distilled down all the great things we liked about blues music, 
folk musics from around the world, hardcore rock and roll, and then the stranger stuff on the periphery of music. But yeah, the Femmes uh, did, did aspire to and did finally become an international phenomenon. We still are, and here we're looking at this year celebrating the 40th anniversary of our first album, which still continues to sell all over the world. So, so the way I look at it is in, in some cockamamie way, we're still current. I don't think we ever really reached the heights that we were destined for, but we're always current, I think, in the scene. People always recognize the name Violent Femmes. I mean, my God, I mean, how are you gonna forget it? But at the same time, we've established a legacy that, that is unto ourselves. It, it doesn't really share with anybody else in our chosen genre, which I, I guess would be alternative music. And, I, and I'm very proud of that, that we have a, a unique style. Well, and it's, like I said, it's a, there's an approachability about it as unique as it was. I mean, you know, the opening couple of notes from Blister in the Sun is played at every football game, every baseball game around America. It's like one of those indelible songs that's, it's just a cultural phenomenon that was written by an 18-year-old kid at, yeah. at, at the time. It's really, it's really remarkable. You know, it's interesting, too, when they use that at, at uh, either uh, sports uh, games or, or what have you, the, the bass is playing the riff, of course. But what's really unique is that I'm the hook playing the drums. <laughs> so that, that's the thing that, that people respond to. Because you, really, you can't really clap out the riff, but you can clap those staggered little uh flams that i play on the snare drum it's almost too bad they weren't giving you a check for every time that's played publicly because uh you'd be sitting on a it's on not a... too bad in fact i should start demanding <laughs> you should <laughs> <laughs> who do who do i talk to oh I... <laughs> there's, got, there's well i mean bud Selig lived in town for an awful long period of time you know? <laughs> that's true he's still here yeah <laughs> so... But you know, it, it's just uh, it, it's remarkable to me because uh, that I have you because uh, I have met you a couple of times, and I'm, I, I honestly that's like you know forty thirty five years ago, and I don't know if it was because of like Summerfest or you know I saw you at clubs or whatever, but I was always really kind of impressed with the way people would react to you guys because you were like these these hometown heroes. That's Brian Ritchie. That's that's Victor DiLorenzo. That's there's Gordon. People would respond to you guys in a, in a way that was that was very you know you know referential like they like they clearly respected what you did you know I, mean, I don't think people around the country either grasped that Milwaukee had a pretty vibrant music scene at the For same sure. at the same time that you guys were you know starting to have this you know ascent internationally there was a lot going on in Milwaukee right. at that time yeah that that that's for certain it, it's funny we kind of we've kind of uh, described ourselves in that period as being dorkadelic <laughs> in that we were these strange psychedelic farmers from the Midwest. At least that's how people thought about us uh, outside of the Midwest. And uh, we would play this crazy music and, and, uh, and act very strangely on stage while we were performing that music. Um, yeah. It, it, it's still a phenomenon in my mind. And I, I sometimes have to sit back and pinch myself and think, did, did that really happen? Did, did we really sell out Carnegie Hall? Did, did we really sell out the Royal Albert Hall in London? I mean, some of this stuff is just still phenomenal up to me. And again, I think it's one of those strange things where the town just saw you as this 
local band. And it's it, no, no, they were they were the weirdos that played underneath the marquee of the Downer Theater or the Oriental Theater. <laughs> that's that's where people could see us. They would see us on the street busking. Yeah, because we couldn't when we started out, we couldn't really get a job in a club because people didn't take us seriously. We tried to audition uh, for people and they'd say, yeah, you can leave a cassette on the desk here. And, and we'd say, no, we have our instruments with us. We have an acoustic and a guitar, an acoustic bass guitar, and I play a snare drum and, and we can play you some of our music right here and right now, if you'd like to hear us. Oh, they, they didn't know what to think about that because it was going against the grain of the ordinary. So consequently, most of the time we we're playing on the street which was a good way to develop our act because because we weren't playing for people that were necessarily into seeing some entertainment. And if you could stop them and have them be interested in you for a while, for a few songs or what have you, and even go so far as maybe give us a few dollars in the hat, I mean, that was, that was a great experience and, and a great learning activity for uh, a young trio of musicians. I love the story. I'm, I'm sure you've told the story a million times of uh, of playing outside the the Oriental Theater, which is <laughs> for you know, for people who would who have never seen it. It's maybe the weirdest club in the entire Midwest. You know, it, nowhere can you go see a band, go bowling, and then hang out with bikers all in the all in the same building. It was just it's a remarkable place. But you guys were playing outside the Oriental Theater. And for lack of a better explanation, were suddenly discovered by the Pretenders, which at the time was a huge band that was playing that night. Tell tell me about that story because I, I just think it's just it's fascinating to me. Well, we were doing our usual rounds. We would start playing underneath the marquee of the Downer Theater, which was a few blocks away from the Oriental Theater. We'd stay there for a while. And then in this particular day, we walked over to a place called Century Hall, which was another venue that had had music. And that until it, until it burned down, right? Until it burned down. Yep. And not because they had the best French fries in town, but they did. they they did they did anyway anyway <laughs> uh, anyway the story I'd relate related to before Michael about going in and, and wanting to audition for someone happened that day at the at the uh, where was it. Was it right inside Century Hall? Yeah, it was right inside Century Hall. A fellow had an office in there, and that, that's where that, that happened. And the guy turned us down, didn't want to hear us. Mm -hmm. So so we said, okay, maybe we'll come back in the future. We'll make a cassette we can drop off for you. So then we decided to continue on our rounds, and the next place we were destined to go was the little space underneath the marquee at the Oriental Theater. So we're we're blindly playing away and enjoying ourselves. It was a nice uh, warm day, and someone comes out of the Oriental Theater and stops and and listens to us for a while. This is young guy, and he listens for a while, and then he heads up to the corner, which is where the Oriental Drugstore was. Yep. So he went in there. There was a lunch counter in there, and it was a regular pharmacy. So he went in there and we continued playing. Then the guy came back and he's, he's leaning on a car for a while and he's listening. And then he, he waits till there's a break in between songs. And he goes, you know, I, I like the way you guys play. You remind me of a band that's, that's starting to happen now uh, called the Stray Cats. Have you guys ever heard of them? And, and at that time we hadn't. We said, no, we, we don't know who you're talking about. He goes, oh, oh well, they're a good, like a rockabilly band. You should really look into them and... and uh, and you, you'll notice the uh, 
the, the ways that you, you guys are alike. And we said, oh, okay, thanks for the info. So the guy goes into the Oriental theater. We continue playing, but maybe 15 minutes later, the doors open again to the theater, out comes four people. They come out and they're leaning on the car and they're listening. And we started to play this song called Girl Trouble. And it has this great refrain of, I've got girl trouble, girl trouble up the ass. <laughs> and, and the woman that was part of the four that were listening to us, she just started laughing like crazy. She couldn't believe <laughs> that we were singing this song. So afterwards, she comes up to and she goes, hey, you guys are fantastic. My name is Chris. Do you want a gig tonight? We said, a gig tonight? What do you mean? She goes, well, you know, we're playing here tonight. We said, you're playing here tonight? And she goes, yeah, we're the pretenders. And I don't know, unless it was Sonny Rollins, uh, John Coltrane, or the Art Ensemble, or Albert Ayler. I didn't know who she was talking about because I was so into jazz. So, so I went, oh, the pretenders. Oh, uh, okay, um, you want us to play in the theater tonight on the stage? And she goes, yeah, can you open the show for us? Maybe come out and play three songs. So we said, yeah, we're not doing anything. Sure, we'd love to do that. So we still didn't believe that it was true. But we came back in a few hours. And, and uh, I think we did a little bit of a sound check. And then we went backstage. And Chris, Chrissy Hine turned out. She said, listen, um, we can't pay you anything. But you can certainly watch the show. And you can eat anything that's backstage here, you know, in the, in the, uh, the little setup here in the dressing room. We said, okay, thanks. So uh, time came where they had an opening act called the Bureau, I think, and they were a horn act from London. So they finished, then the lights go down and everybody thinks the pretenders are gonna come out. <laughs> and then these three idiots come walking out and we start playing and most of the people are going, ah, no, not those guys from the street, no, no. And then some people were really excited that we were playing. And it's funny, after the fact now, whenever I talk to anybody who says, first of all, that they were even at the show, they said, oh, you guys were fantastic. And I'm thinking, yeah, you were probably one of the people that were booing us. <laughs> but anyway, okay, so, so we, we went to the stage, played the show. Afterwards, we were just three dorks again, and next day just on the street again. So. I mean, it, it's a good kind of a Schwab's drugstore story <laughs> right. about getting that close to fame. But what really happened for us was later on, I think uh, in the next couple of months, is when we made uh, our first trips to New York City. And that's when we started getting a reputation there. So at what point do you have enough stuff where you say, okay, we, we want to make a record and uh, you record this new record and then all of a sudden it just it's on every college campus in America. What, you know, what, well, what was there's it? a little bit more, there was a little sure, more development involved. I'm sure there is, but than no. just that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it's an um, oversimplification, but I'm, I'm willing, yeah, I'm willing very, to sit and listen to it. <laughs> very much so. Um, I'll tell you what happened, Michael, was we had wanted to make a record, of course, as any young band wants to. And we were fortunate in that Gordon was writing so much material. He had this magic notebook that 
when it came time to rehearse and we wanted to do something new, he would open up this notebook and he'd say, okay, I got these lyrics and I, I worked on, on this chord progression and here's the kind of um, melody that I'm fooling around with. And then Brian and I would put it through our brains and we would add arrangement ideas, maybe suggest different changes uh, to the structure itself, uh, maybe a word here and there, what have you. And then we would fashion the song. And we had so much material by, by doing just that when we would rehearse. So, so consequently, when it finally got to the point where we wanted to make this first album, we already had enough original material to make two albums. So, so when we made that first album, it was a matter of just picking which we thought were the best collection would be at that particular point in time. And the next record that we made after the first one, which was called Hallowed Ground, featured a lot of the uh, material that we had already written that was there at the time of the first album. So anyway, we decided we're gonna make this record and we tried to figure out how to get money together to make the record. We weren't being very successful. So finally I, I said, listen guys, I'll, I'm gonna ask my dad, but you know, this is really important that, that we follow through on this not only make a good record, but that we promote it and we're gonna to have to pay my dad back. So under the good guises of, of my father, a wonderful gentleman, he lent us $10,000. And that's how we got into, it was called Castle Recording Studios at that time in Lake Geneva on the grounds of the old Playboy Club. And so we went in there and we made the record in off hours and uh, came out with a record that we weren't exactly sure what we thought about it, but we knew that it was finished and, and we were gonna follow through and, and try and get a record deal. And consequently, as I said before, pay back my father the money. I just keep thinking about like, you know, asking my own father for $10,000. He's like, yeah, you could have $10,000 but you better clean your room and, you know, <laughs> mow the lawn. And, well, you know, 1981, $10,000 was a lot, a lot of money, of money. Uh, especially for a young unproven uh, boy band that, that you're going to go in and make this record of, of music that didn't really sound like what you were hearing on the radio. At that time. <laughs> no, definitely so not. So we were all taking, we're all, we're all gambling. Uh, the band, my father, uh, Mark Van Hecke, who was a friend of mine that I'd met through theater connections he was uh, helping produce the record with us uh, and then became our manager for a while. And then he eventually uh, helped us get this deal together. We had, we had talked originally with Alan Betrock, which was a, a fellow from New York City who had a, a magazine called New York Rocker. And he liked the Femmes. And as a matter of fact, he came to Milwaukee to see us and he was going to be the investor for our first album. But unfortunately, what happened after we had booked the time at the studio in Lake Geneva, he got sick, so he pulled out of the project. Hmm. So we had committed, so we had to come up with the money, and that's how I came up with the idea of asking my father for, for the money. But after the record was finished, we started shopping it, and I, I've got so many rejection letters in my <laughs> office back here. But uh, finally, we had uh, a woman who was interested at Slash Records out in Los Angeles, and so she she played it for Bob Biggs, the president. And it took a little while to convince him, but then finally they decided to sign us and put the record out. And the record just took off when it, when it was when it was released. It it really spread like 
like fire, especially among uh, disc jockeys and college radio. That's what really started to take off. But then it started to even get some mainstream play, which well, was really fascinating to us. What I always thought was interesting. So, so I'm, you know, a, a student at Marquette. And I had friends and, and was originally from Massachusetts. So I had, you know, friends who were going to school in Florida and in New York and, you know, other areas of the country. And they would all call me and say, what do you know about this band from Milwaukee? And I'm like, well, what do you know about this band from Milwaukee? You're absolutely right. I mean, this thing, you know, spread pretty fast across college radio. It seemed like a very brief period of time not a lot of bands had that kind of trajectory that you guys had with that right. first record well also i think what really happened and and really showed the work ethic that we had is that we went out and played everywhere anywhere that we could in america at first of course until we started to to travel internationally but hey you want you want a gig over here in uh where the hell is it mississippi okay we're, we're there so, so we really did the time. And, and I think that, well, I don't think, I know that's, that's what helped to make us popular. And also the stage show that we were putting on just from three guys making this racket, it, it was unheard of in those times. Because if you would see us setting up, you would think, how is this gonna sound? What, <laughs> what is, that guy has like a metal bushel basket up there he's gonna play. and. What's that big guitar, that huge guitar? <laughs> and, you know, it, it just didn't look like it was going to make any sense when you looked at, at the stage setting. But then you'd hear us, and, and, and especially the sound people would go, wow, we can't believe that you guys make that much sound with, with, with hardly any instrumentation. So that, that really served us well, too. We, we got a we got a really good rep as, as being a band that put on a great live show. One of the things that I didn't realize is, you know, how much younger Gordon Gano was than, than you and Brian. I mean, I think it was right. like what, nine years, 10 years. It was, it was a significant age difference when you meet him for the very first time and he's introducing you to these songs. I mean, you and Brian have been playing for at least a little while before bringing him on. Did, did you immediately connect with the songs that he was presenting or was it just, or was it more of like a slower development than that? Well, when I was first told about Gordon, Brian described him to me as a pint-sized Lou Reed imitator. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay, that kind of sounds all right, I guess. <laughs> so we go and see Gordon and I, and Gordon was playing with his brother at that time, just a couple of acoustic guitars and, and singing Gordon's material and they were doing some covers. But uh, I was fascinated by his original material because it did remind me of Lou Reed and, and, and Velvet Underground in some, some ways. And I was a big Velvet Underground fan from, from way back, even before I was a musician. So consequently, I was excited about the idea of getting together and playing some music with him. Now, first Brian and I had got together and started working as a rhythm section. Um, and we called the rhythm section Violent Femmes. And that was before Gordon was ever involved. Before that, Brian and I had played in a band, just a more of a normal four-piece rock band called the Romboids. And after we left that band is when we put the, together the rhythm section called Violent Femmes. And when, when we started playing out as Violent Femmes, 
we were just backing up anybody that that was interested in having us back them up. And then I found out about Gordon through Brian. We went to see Gordon and then we started rehearsing and it it just fell into place magically. The, yeah. the songs were good. Our arrangement ideas were good. Uh, we had a very unique, uh, memorable sound together. And it just seemed like we were we were happy being together at that time. There wasn't any uh, family animosities that that grow over a period of time to, that uh, go on to destroy certain things, especially in our case. But uh, at the beginning, there it was all for one and one for all. We were we were the three musketeers. I can understand the Velvet Underground connection, but I always thought there was more. The Violent Femmes reminded me more of the of the Modern Lovers. Which I thought was interesting because you you guys had worked with Jerry Harrison on your on your third record, Jerry Harrison from right. Talking Heads and the and the and the Modern Lovers, and you know he was a Milwaukee, you know and, guy. And we, as knew well. John, we knew Jonathan Richmond from being on the road too. Yeah, I and and I and I can you know when I hear songs like "Give Me the Car," I I hear like a Jonathan Richmond in, in that song, and to me that's what kind of separated you guys from a lot of other no other band wanted to be the Modern Lovers <laughs> as great as right. they as great as they were. I think they right. were afraid to kind of, you know, jump into that kind of territory. But I can see where, like, Jerry Harrison would see you guys and say, okay, I want to work with these guys. And and, and like yeah, I said, like, he did on your third record. Yeah, and, and as a matter of fact, he did say something to that effect that when I first heard you guys, I, I didn't know you were from Milwaukee. And, you know, Jerry's from Milwaukee, too. Yeah. And so, and so he put together that whole thing with the connection with Jonathan and the Velvets and, and uh something that that we were a little bit more into especially brian and i was the more esoteric side of the the jazz world which was something that gordon and and jerry weren't really that familiar with but but a lot of the improvisational breaks and and the way we could run ragged with the arrangements at the at the drop of a hat that was from brian and i and our appreciation of, of free jazz and and being able to to really improvise uh, and and not just on a structure that's already there, but just pure improvisation. It's it's interesting that you talk you know, uh, about you being you know so connected to jazz. I've played the drums since I was in sixth grade, and not very well, by the way. But I've you know, I've, I've played them, and, and and you know when I hear you play, the thing that I respect about it is you never overplay. You play right to the song, and. You know, you're not there to be the next John Bonham. You're to me, you're more like a like a Charlie Watts. So whether it requires brushes or basic rudiments or simple snare work, it's always to you know to the benefit of the actual song. And and in a way, there's there's a there's a there's kind of a, a jazz thought to the way you you play. Tell me about that and and about your connection to jazz. Well, when I started playing drum set, oh boy, this was probably in. Right around 1971 is when I started playing. Mm -hmm. And the reason I started playing, Michael, was that my cousin called me one day, my cousin, Michael Fairbanks. And he said, hey, Victor, I've got this friend, Mark Francetic. He's going to Vietnam. He's trying to sell some stuff to get some money together. Are you interested in buying a drum set? <laughs> uh, and I had played viola in grade school and I had studied piano, but the idea of playing the drums never entered my mind. But when he said that, I don't know why, but I just said, yes, I would be interested. I, I'd like to get that drum set. 
So for $350, I bought a four piece, it's like a black oyster pearl Slingerland drum set with cymbals, uh, a ride, a crash and a pair of hi hats. <laughs> and so I brought the drums home. I was still living at my parents' house. I, I put them in the basement where I was living outside of, uh, we had a rec room down there and there was a bar and then I had my own room down there. And so I just left the drums uh, sitting in the bar area. And for about two weeks, I'd come home from school, I'd walk past the drum set, I'd look at it and I'd just go into my room and I didn't even know how to set up the drum set. <laughs> I, 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 didn't, I didn't really know anything about the architecture of it. So finally, I had a friend of mine come over that was a drummer. He helped me set it up. And then that started my love affair with the drums. And I, I first just kind of banged around on my own. Then I set up a stereo and had the headphones and started playing along to music. And I figured I'm gonna get serious. So I started to study with this fellow by the name of Joe Police. And this is in Racine, Wisconsin, where I grew up. And Joe was a very fine big band drummer uh, circa 40s and 50s in Chicago. He was a contemporary of Buddy Rich and Louis Belson and Joe Morello and Mel Lewis and wow. all those guys. And uh, he's the one that taught me the appreciation of the brushes and how to play the brushes. And also got my reading together so I can, I can read drum rhythmic notation and stuff. And I studied with him for, for quite a while. Uh, and then I, I came up to Milwaukee here and I went to school at UWM and then I studied symphonic percussion with Telly Lesbines of the Milwaukee Symphony. And then I also studied theater and, and contemporary literature. Those were my three focuses at school. But the funny thing about the playing drums for the femmes is I, I agree with what you said, the good drummers good song drummers like say you know god bless charlie watts and and ringo and, and what have you is not only they played the song but they played the song with an authority and a control over their influence that you could always tell it where they were playing the drums even though even though it was maybe just a very simple beat that they were playing you just you just could tell the way that they sounded the way their snare drum sounded or, or the way they played the cymbal or, or how they would crash on the cymbals or what have you. I mean, it's called style, of course. And you could pick out those styles of these individuals. And I wanted to be that way. That's the way I wanted to play songs was I wanted to be a stylist. But then I would also want to have that ability, like say a, a Rashid Ali or an Alvin Jones or a Don Moyer or, or what have you, to, to really just improvise and, and use the drum set in a, in a very evocative, very pure way. So you're not just playing time for someone, you're playing the drums in a melodic fashion. That's what, that's what always got me about playing with the femmes because, okay, if I'm just playing a snare drum, how do I get across the idea of I'm playing a full drum set on one drum? And so I started figuring out how to break up the rhythms so it would suggest that. Of course, you can't really do that because it's one drum. Right. But it would suggest that by the way I was playing, that there was a snare drum. Here was maybe how the bass drum would feel if it was there. 
here's here's the ride, whatever it is on a hi-hat or a cymbal. And that's that was that was my challenge. How can I do that on one drum? Well, and I think, you know, anyone like a drummer can understand exactly what you're saying. As someone who may have never played drums may think, well, you know, Ringo's not that great or Charlie Watts wasn't that, that great. A real drummer will tell you, oh, no, you need to understand the genius behind those guys. It was much more complicated than 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 you might realize. And I totally get what you're what what you're saying it's it, it's actually kind of funny because my first drum kit was a blue sparkle slingerland radio king oh and it was it was beautiful and and i my first teacher was was an old jazz guy just like uh just like he was a big band uh you, you know player and he was fantastic there you go. but he was the crankiest meanest son of a bitch you ever oh, met in your life and, oh no and, and if, if if you know you know, if I if I came to the lessons and I hadn't really practiced all that hard, you know, he he just you know, he'd start screaming and yelling. It's like you got the whole paradiddles wrong. It's like you know, at that point I said, you yeah, know, okay, maybe 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 I'll skip these lessons and find something else. And, and then I then I played the, then I played the headphones and and records like you know ninety five percent of everybody else. But but I told but I totally under, understand that. And you know when it comes to things like you know, brushes and snare work. There's there's an artistry and a technique about it that when you can combine the two and fit that into the context of a song, it completely changes what that instrument really is. It's a much more expressive instrument than just pure percussion. It, it, it's, a, right. it's a beautiful instrument. Right, and I, especially when you're talking about the world of, of brush playing, there's so much there to uncover. Whereas a lot of people, when they play brushes, they just use them as substitutes for sticks and, and they don't really get into the artistry of it. And that's something that I fell in love with right away. And I think that I can play much more expressively with brushes than I can with sticks. There's just something about the play you get out of the brushes. And of course, also the, the swirling motion and, and, and the, the scraping uh, which helped to define rhythms, but I just, I don't know. I, just, I still, to this day, I just love the brushes when I get them in my hands and I start playing, it just makes me feel wonderful. It's a, a in a, in a way, it's kind of like a lost art is you know, oh, sure. in, in contemporary music. The, the, uh, the use of, of brushes, right. the way it's you know, just kind of like a forgotten thing, but when you hear it done and you hear it done yeah. right and, uh, and beautifully, it is a, a very expressive way of of playing that instrument well that's why i'm I'm very glad that the the two musical groups i i play mostly with now are 1913 which is a duo uh with uh, the cellist janet schiff and myself and she loves that i play the brushes and then i play with david jay and darwin miners in a trio called night crickets and those guys like the brushes too so i'm, I'm very fortunate that i'm working with people that that appreciate it and don't just want to hear the heavy-handed stick playing. Right. You know, they're, they're into the finesse of it. I want to ask you about uh, about the Night Crickets because I've been listening to that uh, that record quite a lot lately. Um, oh, good. Uh, one of the reasons why is it was released on Omnivore Recordings, and Cheryl Pavelski is an old Marquette friend of mine. I've, you know, I've known Cheryl for oh my god, almost <laughs> nearly forty years. And yeah, what a great woman. She is phenomenal. And uh, yeah, she's phenomenal. And you know, her success with you know winning Grammys and being nominated. I'm so proud yeah. of her the way she's done it. But the idea of 
of you playing with uh, with David Haskins, David J. Uh, from Bauhaus and Love and Rockets. It seems like an odd combination until you hear the record, and then you say, yes. "Oh, this makes total sense," and it's yeah. a great. It's a great record. It's, it's it's moody. It's it's dark. It swings. It's like a really great, powerful record. It's almost a shame that he's going back on the road with Love and Rockets to, uh, as opposed to spending more time with with this. Tell tell me about how you got well, together. I mean, here's, with here's, okay, here's some good news for you, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're about eighty five percent done with the second album. Oh, good. So so there's another record in the pipeline right now as we speak and you know when i thought about it at first the idea of it because it all came about by kismet in 2013 i got back together with violent femmes and we played four shows two of the shows were at the coachella festival in los angeles excuse me in california there and at one of the shows backstage i met this fellow named darwin miners and it turns out he was a musician, but he was also the manager of David J. And so he started talking to me about David and, and how he's working with him and, and then describing to me his own music and, and what his tastes were and, and what kind of instruments he played and this and that. And we got along very well. So we stayed in touch. And then maybe about, oh, I don't know, a few months later, he asked if I'd want to be part of this record that he was making and David was going to be a part of that. And I said, sure. So I think uh, what happened was I, I don't think I turned out to play anything. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a little foggy remembering this because mostly what I remember is going out to, to visit Darwin and meeting up and working with Darwin on a video for one of the songs off the album. But anyway, so I go out to make the video and that's where I make, make my acquaintance with David J. And it turns out that he said that Bauhaus were the biggest Femmes fans. Really? You'd, you'd never know that listening to their music, but he said, no, we were really, we were really impressed by you guys. We liked the sound that you made and, and we liked that kind of Americana that was happening with you guys. And and also you weren't a big heavy metal band, you know, a hair band. You know, you guys look like <laughs> these guys from the Midwest, and we really appreciated that. So anyway, get to know David a little bit, come back to Milwaukee. And then we fast forward to 2021. It's about the holiday time. And Darwin gets in touch with me and he goes, Hey Victor, is it possible if I gave you some money, could you create some drum tracks for me? that I could write some songs to. And I said, sure, I could do that. But also, you know, I have a studio here in Milwaukee, which I've had for decades. Right. And anytime I have a good drum setup going and I like the sound, I'll record just some wild drums. I'll just get a, a, a click track going and I'll just play some drums because I like the sound. And then I figure I'll create this graveyard of, of beats that I can just pull out and use if if I'm interested in doing something like that. Now, would you want me to send you some of those things? And he goes, yeah, why don't you do that? So I sent him, I think maybe three tracks of drums and percussion and he started working on it. And then one day I was thinking, maybe I should ask him if he would think maybe David would wanna be interested in playing along. So, so he asked David and David said, yeah, I'd love to do that. So before we know it, 
we've got six songs going. And this is all remotely, just sending tracks back and forth through the through the ether. And it was amazing how how fast everything came together and how we were so like-minded in what we were contributing. Because it wasn't like I would say, okay, this is kind of like a CCR feel, and I want you to write some lyrics about this. We all just had ideas once we'd hear the track and we would contribute and then we would fashion or, or delete certain parts of the idea, whatever. But it was a true collaboration in that sense and that we didn't know what we were getting into. And the next thing we knew, we had an, an EP, a six song EP that was finished. That's the point where I figured I would introduce myself to Cheryl because I didn't know her. So I called her and I said, listen, we have this uh, EP. Would you be interested in hearing it? And she said, well, you know, Victor, we mostly deal with, with resurrecting stuff that, that has been gone for a long time or, or, or reissuing catalogs of the whole catalogs of people or what have you. But we do do some new stuff. Uh, but sure, yeah, I, I would like to hear it. So I sent Cheryl the tracks on a Monday. She got back to me on Wednesday and offered us the deal. <laughs> So yeah. that's the fastest I've ever, you know, worked with a record company in my life. Well, I, I emailed her and said, "Hey, listen, I'm talking to Victor DiLorenzo. Lorenzo." And she says, "Well, first of all, tell him I said hi." And then we oh, and, and then we were, we were kind of chatting about, you know, how much she really believed in in the record, the Free Society, and you know how much she loved it and really expected real good things out of it. And and, and I, you know, she's she's very supportive of musicians and and you know the. the I mean, she's right. Most of the stuff that she releases is historical stuff, but not exclusively. And when she does hit on a, a new artist, uh, you know, you know, producing newer music, it's really interesting what she chooses to distribute. It's, I mean, it's 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 a it's a fascinating record label on yes. a lot of different a lot of different ways. And I totally I can totally see why why Cheryl would have picked up on this and said, "Yeah, we want to get we want to get involved in this pretty heavy." Yeah, it was it was so funny too, Michael, in that she loved the EP, was all ready to work with it, but no one told us to stop writing. So we kept <laughs> writing and recording. And the next phone call I'm making to her is um Cheryl, the EP is kind of turned into a 13-song album now. <laughs> is that okay? And she goes, Well, send it along and I'll play it for the staff and we'll see what what we think. And of course they they really liked the additions to the to the ep and so it transformed into a, a full-length record that we put out and um yeah i was very impressed at at how they uh not only set up the business with us but also allowed us to do vinyl and the pressing is really i was very very happy that the pressing sounded as good as it did I'm thrilled to hear that you guys are, are close to doing a, a second record because i'm real curious to hear what it what it sounds like is it is it similar? Oh, this, the second one is incredible. I mean, the songwriting has really taken us to new heights, and also the instrumentation. There's a lot of stuff going on now that it, it's really exciting to me because I always tell the guys every time I open up an email from them with new tracks, it's it's like a young kid on Christmas morning. I I, I just get so excited. <laughs> I don't know what's going to be there. It's interesting when when uh, when a project suddenly becomes a, a band. 
You yeah. start off as like a side project, but now you're used to playing with each other and you know each other's strengths a little bit more and your weaknesses and you play to those strengths and weaknesses. It, it, I mean, it must be a little bit more exciting now. Like it's like, okay, these, these are guys that I really understand as opposed to I'm just getting to know right. them. Right. And, and that's what we had in mind too. We didn't want it to be just a project, which I have disdain for that terminology but it, it is a band it's, yeah. it's a band of three thinking living musicians and we're all excited to be working together and sometimes especially being thrown into a situation like this that just came about through kismet i mean we didn't plan this you could maybe run into you know some ruffling of feathers here and there but but we haven't had any disagreements or any big arguments about anything we've been able to be very mature in the way that we handle the music and also how we handle one another. And that's, that's very refreshing for me, especially coming out of another trio that I, I used <laughs> to be part of. So, so this is very refreshing. And uh, I, I just can't wait to see what, what people think about this next record, because there's, there's a few songs on this that I think are really going to hit. I think people are really going to be surprised. So what's the what's the time frame on on that? When do you think you'll be ready to put that out? I don't out? really have a time frame right now. We're like I said we're about maybe 85% finished. Hopefully we'd be able to go to mastering maybe sometime towards the end of February. Mm. But I don't see I don't see this even coming out until maybe fall probably. And and we are talking about in the future doing some live shows, so Oh, you, you could open up for uh, Love and Rockets. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Well, I, I I can't wait to hear it. I wish you guys the best. I, I like I said, I, I thank I, you. I love the first record, and I've and I've been a big fan for a long, did long time. Did you see time. the new video? I did see it. It's it's oh, really okay. cool. Right. Yeah, it's wicked. Good, good. It's really well done. So, but you know, honestly, uh, I I truly appreciate you spending some time today because uh, oh, my pleasure, Michael. Hey, I've always got time for another drummer. <laughs> well it's funny i have uh, i've always got time for another uh, there you go i mean it's just just to show you i, oh, all I, right. I, I got an old I, I got an old snare i'm trying to fix i fucked this thing up so many times but wait what kind what, what uh is it this is a this is an old pacific oh yeah okay and uh and the lugs came all loose they got all rusted and i you know oh, I, all right. I got the pieces and then all of a sudden the pandemic hit and my wife was a teacher, you know, I, right. I, I couldn't play during the daytime when she was teaching from home. So I just put it aside and, you know, stopped playing for a while. And then, you know, she went, you know, back into the classroom. And then I said, I think I'll just go buy another snare <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and did that instead. But, uh, yeah, right now I got a, a Pacific that I, that I, I like, it's a nice, you know, inexpensive, you know, sure. set to just kick around with, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I listen. I could talk drums all day long. Yeah. They're really good. You know, I haven't, I hadn't bought, I hadn't bought any new drum material in so many years. I mean, having a recording studio here, I have four drum sets, and I have probably, I think I probably have about nineteen snare drums and an assortment of, of different cymbals and 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 percussion and and <laughs> keyboards. I've got guitars. I got bass. I've got all kinds of stuff here because I I play other things besides the drums too, but. But the uh, drum set that I got in 2013 when I was going to go play these shows with the Femmes was a brand new Ludwig uh, with a black Galaxy finish. Oh, wow. And that's mostly what I play now. I got two different bass drums. I got a 20-inch and I got an 18. 
And then I got um, acrylite, or it's called the blackrolite snare. So it's mm. a, it's a it's an aluminum drum, but it's 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 black and it and it has the black galaxy finish on it. Very nice. So this, so it's a little different than a regular acrylite. And then I have uh, just a eight by 12, 14 and a 16 floor tom. But uh, yeah, I, I love that drum set. I, I had, I had mostly played Gretsch for, for most of my life, mm -hmm. but, but for some reason, Ludwig just seemed very appetizing to me at that time. And they were very nice to me too, because I'm, I'm a Ludwig artist and uh, man, that particular set that they made me, I, I just love that set. That's, that's what you hear all over the, the night crickets record. Yeah, and, it sounds. Uh, it's, and, and that's all over the brand new one too. Yeah, it sounds great. You know, it's funny because like you know, in the in the, the first Violent Femmes record, in a way, the drums sound like they're, you know, like the, the <laughs> that the that the heads are made out of cardboard. You know, it's like, it's, it's such a a lo-fi, uh, you, you know, sound. You know, clearly you, you up you upgraded with the new record, but uh, right. I, I I'm like one of these guys. I got I got lucky, you know, stumbling onto like some things on eBay. Or yeah, you know, they uh, sure. one of the things that sometimes happens you'll see someone you know drop something at the end of their driveway you know that anyone, <laughs> right. anybody can grab for free. Sure. I'm, I'm driving my car one day and I'm driving around town and I see something on the ground. I'm like, holy shit, that's a that's a set of of, of roto toms. <laughs> so, oh yeah. So someone had dropped off this set of of roto toms and they were you know they a, a little bit rusty and you know I tried to clean yeah. them up and everything. Even bought heads for them and brand new stand. And, you know, I, I didn't really want Roto Toms, but I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to drive away from, you know, Roto yeah. Toms are being thrown away. They sound, they sound amazing. They sound, sure. yeah, it, it was like the, the, like the, the, the three Roto Toms together on a, uh, the, the rack Toms. And it was like so yeah. cool to have. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I don't play them, but it's like, I got them. That's <laughs> it right. Like, it well, it's, it's like. It's like me. I have a, a Gretsch uh, 1954 uh, cocktail drum. Oh wow! And I and I don't play it all the time, but I have it. You know, <laughs> and, and I'm glad I do have it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you can you like anything. If you're a collector, you can get carried away. Luckily, I mean, for me, the the two worst things, right, being a drum drum collector and also having a studio. I mean, you can burn up money so fast in oh. both of those venues. <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad that I always discipline myself. So the collection that I have is fine for me. I'm not looking for anything brand new, even though a year ago I bought a Avidus, a Zildjian, the Avidus line. Oh, wow. I bought a 19-inch ride, and the patina looks like it's a symbol from the 50s, right? And it's it's expensive. It was a 19-inch ride for $650. Wow. But man, this is my favorite symbol I've ever had in my life. I bet. Love this symbol. I want to get a pair of the hi hats now, but I think the hi hats are like nine hundred dollars or something. <laughs> there's no. But end. I mean, there's there's no. But I mean, end. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's mm -hmm. it's an it's an expensive hobby. That's why you know buying you know cheap Pacific you know parts is like all right. That's yeah. you know that's that I can I can afford. I can afford that and, and, right. and, and explain to my wife, Oh no, no, I absolutely need to have this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> hey Vic, I've, I've taken up enough of your time. I, I appreciate right. it so much. It's a, it's a real pleasure to see you again. And, uh, okay, and, and, and when the next album comes out, I'd love to talk to you one more time. Yeah, let's, let's definitely do that. And, uh, and, uh, keep up the drumming skills. Keep at it. I will.
I will. Thank you, Victor. Have yourself a great afternoon. Okay, you too, Michael. Take care. You can check out the Night Crickets album of Free Society on Omnivore Recordings with more on the way. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, like it, share it, tell all your friends about it. You can reach me at BaxAtRock102.com. I'd love to hear what you think. And I hope you join me next time on Baxi's Musical Podcast.